0: What should we, as followers of Christ, think of these groups who protest and joyfully proclaim God's judgment at the funerals of soldiers killed in war? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everyone, and happy New Year! You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts dot org. Today is Monday, January the third of two thousand eleven. I'm your host, as always, Toby Logsdon. Thank you so much for downloading this message today. We are truly blessed to be starting yet another year of doing the podcasts uh, here at Uh As you guys know, we've been doing Romans kind of from the beginning. Today we're going to be covering Romans chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, and we'll get started with that here in just a moment. But I do want to welcome you, and you know, I hope you guys had a fantastic Christmas season and a blessed new year. It was truly a blessed season for me. Uh, I do have an announcement to make. Uh, I was named as, uh, and voted as the senior pastor at Linwood evangelical free church, um, up in Linwood, Washington, which is in the Seattle suburbs about, um, Maybe twenty, thirty miles north of Seattle. But uh, as you guys saw last week, or the week before, I posted my sermon that I had preached there on one Thessalonians chapter one, and uh, you know, I thought um, thought it was a pretty good sermon. I thought I did pretty well with it. Apparently, it connected with them. They voted last Sunday unanimously to extend the invitation to me and my family, for us to move up there and to join their family. So we are truly blessed. We are so excited to be moving up there to the, the greater Seattle area, I guess is what you'd call it, to, uh, to minister. It's a very postmodern culture. Uh, 78% of, uh, of Seattle or, or Linwood is unchurched. Uh, They don't belong to any church or any religious organizations. They just don't do anything. So there is definitely a a very, very serious challenge up there. But I believe that the apologetics and the philosophy that I picked up in seminary uh, is truly, truly just a a huge thing. It's really going to help me out a lot in reaching that community up there, and I'm excited to do it. So we're looking at moving up there at the end of this month. We are at breakneck speed here, man. We are really uh, trying to race to to get up there. We're excited to get up there. Uh, We think that it is just a, a a great opportunity with a lot of potential that church has thousands and thousands of cars driving by it every day uh and there's definitely uh, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that we have in mind for ways to reach the community anyway very exciting if you guys could continue praying with me and for me as as we move up there and you know the the whole transition you know the for the church up there for the community up there uh, for my kids, especially, you know, it's it's really hard. My son's 13 years old, and he's got to leave all his friends behind, and uh, he's, he's not uh, hesitant to do it. I mean, man, when I was 13, uh, I remember my dad saying, you know, I'm looking at getting another job someplace else, and I was not happy about that at all. My son's accepted it, uh, so man, he, he he's such a good kid. I, I have to say, I am so proud of my son. But for my daughter too, she's nine years old. She is really excited to move up there because uh, they don't have the hot, humid summers that we have here in Arkansas. Anyway, So, if you guys could be praying with me and for me uh, through this season of transition, it would be very, very much appreciated. I also wanted to make one more announcement before we get started here, and that is that this Friday we will be doing an apologetics podcast. We're going to be talking about naturalism, and this is actually the the Sunday school lesson that I taught up at Linwood Evangelical Free Church while I was there. And by the way, you can get on their website, it's linwoodefc.org, L-Y-N-N-W-O-O-D. EFC.org. But yeah, so this Friday we're going to be talking about naturalism and refuting it. In fact, I'm going to show you guys why it is by definition unreasonable. It's going to be fun. Anyway, we've got a lesson here. Let's go ahead and get started with this with just a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we start this new year, we do want to stop and acknowledge who you are and reflect on what you've done, how you've saved us, from sin, from the penalty of sin, and that you're saving us from the power of sin, Lord. Help us to become more like you, more like your son every day. We pray that you will lead us and guide us daily by your Holy Spirit in order that we can become more like you. We love you. We dedicate this time to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have to understand that the world doesn't understand spiritual matters. This is something that we've covered here in our Roman series. But we know that the, the world, the natural person, doesn't understand spiritual matters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul wrote, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So Paul's talking about people who remain In the darkness, spiritually speaking, whose hearts remain devoid of the presence of the Holy Spirit. See, because such a person doesn't have the ability to understand the spiritual realm, they kind of lump all religions into one massive category, and they see them as more or less equivalent to one another. And that's where views like pluralism come in where you know people argue that there's not just one way to heaven but that there are many ways to heaven hello oprah winfrey anyone because you see what matters to a natural man isn't the truthfulness behind what a person believes all that matters is whether the person who believes something is sincere about what they believe but to the contrary the word of god reveals that jesus is the one and only savior of all of humanity and the only way to heaven is to place one's trust for salvation in Jesus, and that it's by God's grace alone, through our trusting in his Son, Jesus, alone, that opens the doors of heaven. Now, because the natural man cannot discern or understand spiritual things, it's not uncommon for authentic Christ followers to be categorized with unauthentic. Christ followers. That was apparently one of the problems in the church in Corinth, and you could probably actually write a a whole set of encyclopedias on the issues that the church in Corinth was having, and this was definitely one of them being categorized authentic christ followers being categorized with unauthentic christ followers now paul had great concerns about the infiltration of unauthentic christ followers into circles of authentic christ followers in corinth and that's why he wrote in second corinthians chapter 11 verses 13 to 15 for such men are false apostles deceitful Workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. In other words, Paul's telling the authentic followers of Christ to disassociate themselves from the unauthentic believers. If Satan is willing to deceive by playing the role of an authentic angel of light, it shouldn't be any surprise that a false teacher would also deceive by playing the role of an authentic follower of Jesus. Now, if we were to glance across the horizon right now in our modern culture, we'd find that there are several groups which could possibly be classified as false believers. And we'd find that, not surprisingly, the world tends to place us as authentic Christ followers in the same category as these false followers of Jesus. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses come to mind first. Uh, If we're being perfectly honest here, the world sees very few differences between us and them. They don't want to know the differences. In fact, they don't look in depth to see what the differences might be. They just don't care. But the Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witnesses are really pretty easy to identify as unauthentic followers of Jesus if one simply takes a look at what they believe. And maybe that's why I'm amazed when authentic followers of Jesus welcome Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses into their circles especially in light of something else that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He wrote, "I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one." That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11. Not to mention the fact that Paul instructed the church in Galatia that if someone taught a false gospel, they were to be accursed. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are both idolaters and both preach a false gospel. And that's why I was actually so disgusted with Liberty University this past year when they had Glenn Beck, who's a Mormon, speak at their graduation ceremony. But I'm getting off the subject a little bit here. What I want to focus on is other fringe groups which aren't so easy for the world to distinguish us from, and who, again, we are commonly categorized with. Now, one of these Fringe groups, if you'd call it that, one of these fringe groups, which seems to be in the news more frequently than other groups, is a group of people who claim to be quote-unquote Christian, and they go around protesting at the funerals of soldiers who were killed in the line of duty, and they joyfully proclaim God's judgment. Now, I don't want to give this group the honor of getting publicity from my mouth by naming them by name, but I'm sure that most of you who live in America, especially maybe in England or UK, uh, most of you are going to know who I'm talking about. Many of you have seen them on the news as they go to these funerals of soldiers and they hold up signs which are blatantly obscene and just extremely offensive. And these people rejoice over the death of any American soldier, right there in front of the soldier's family. And when the world sees these people on the news, they don't understand that there is an enormous difference between those people who certainly don't appear to be authentic followers of Jesus. Ultimately, I understand that only God can judge the heart, but based on the fruit in their lives, they do not appear to be authentic followers of Jesus. But yeah, there's a huge difference between them and us as authentic followers of Jesus. Here in the 12th chapter of Romans, Paul's begun giving us instructions for daily living. Now, if we're serious about the gospel, and if we've truly been filled by the presence of the Holy Spirit, these are all characteristics that we'll grow in. So, just to refresh your memory really quick, uh, some of these things are to love without hypocrisy, serve one another, persevere in tribulation, be devoted to prayer, um, to contribute to the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to be kind to strangers. Paul doesn't stop there, however. He goes on to give us a couple more exhortations for growing in Christ-likeness, writing here in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Now, these instructions are the epitome of the selfless life that we're all called to live as authentic followers of Jesus. When someone does something to harm you, whether that be physical or emotional harm or what have you, our first instinct, the instinct of the flesh, is usually to retaliate, right? And of course, what happens next if you do? Well, the other person wants to retaliate too, and so the situation continues to escalate because if you retaliate and then they retaliate, well, you'll want to retaliate again, and so on and so forth. In the movie Casino, uh, Robert De Niro's character is approached at a bar by someone who gives him maybe just kind of a funny look. And Joe Pesci plays a guy named Nicky, who is basically kind of a, a bodyguard for Robert De Niro's character. And so Nicky retaliates against this guy, whose only offense was giving a mobster a dirty look by stabbing him with a pen and just maiming the poor guy mercilessly. And as he's doing so, Ace Rothstein, and that's that's Robert De Niro's character, Ace Rothstein narrates by saying, quote, You beat Nicky with fists, he comes back with a bat. You beat him with a knife, he comes back with a gun. And if you beat him with a gun, you better kill him because he'll keep coming back until one of you is dead. End quote. See, we're taught that that's the only way to survive and that that's the way to end the cycle of retaliation, that it's death. And that's why in prison, uh, one inmate will try to murder another inmate for doing something like stealing their shoes. It's so that the cycle of retaliation ends as quickly as possible before it can come back on them. The same reality exists outside of prison walls as well, however. But there's another way. To end the cycle of retaliation, it doesn't have to escalate. It doesn't have to continue beyond the first offense. Paul instructs us to bless those who persecute you. Now, before we go any further, we might want to make note of the fact that the word you here, where it says, bless those who persecute you, the word you exists only in later manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts of this letter that we have simply say, bless those who persecute. That is, bless anyone who persecutes anyone else, rather than raining curses down upon their heads. And again, this is a totally unnatural reaction, especially if we're the ones who are being persecuted. The first century church was undoubtedly being persecuted, which is why Paul instructed, his audience to persevere in tribulation. So this instruction here raises the bar another notch or two, as we're told not just to persevere as we're being persecuted, but to actually bless those who are doing the persecuting. How do we do that? Well, there isn't a specific formula necessarily, but we can, and we should, start with prayer. Yes, Pray for the person who is doing wrong, whether that's to you or to someone else. As our Savior Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he could have easily said, Father, bring your judgment down upon these people. The crowds were yelling, crucify him. But Jesus didn't pray for the Father's judgment upon them. That's the reaction our flesh might tempt us to have. Instead, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Someone heard that. You know that? Somebody heard Jesus say that, and that's why it ended up in our Bibles. Somebody was within earshot and reported it. Can you imagine how deeply convicted some of those people must have felt as they thought, well, wait wait a minute, I'm asking for this guy to be murdered. He's praying for me to be forgiven. It's contrary to human nature. It's unnatural. But that is is christlikeness likeness That's the righteousness of God modeled by our Savior. And Stephen did the same thing when he was being murdered in Acts. He prayed for the forgiveness of his persecutors. And it shows up in our text again today. Why? Because somebody heard him say it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of this group that protests at the funerals of soldiers and joyfully proclaims God's judgment, I tend to think, They're persecuting the families of those soldiers. And so my first instinct is to say, God, will you please wipe these people off the face of the planet? That's my first instinct. But when I remember the words of Jesus, I instead pray, God, will you please forgive them? And will you please teach them to walk by grace instead of by hatred for the glory of your holy name? Will you teach them to follow you as authentic followers of your son, Jesus? My first reaction might be to say, God, they deserve to go to hell. But you know what? Then I remember that there's somebody else I know who also deserves to go to hell. Me. Yeah. We all deserve it. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. That's what grace is all about. And so instead, I pray that they would come to know what God's grace is all about and to experience it firsthand the way that I have. When I do that, when I take my desire to retaliate and I put it in God's hands, I know that that's where it belongs. I replace my desire to retaliate with a desire to see them all come repentance. After all, as Peter wrote, God desires that none should perish, but that all, even these people who mercilessly persecute and ridicule the families of soldiers who died, God's desire is that all would come to repentance. If we're seeing the world the way that God sees the world, that's what we've got to do, even with seemingly Unauthentic followers of Jesus, who give us as authentic followers, a bad name and a bad reputation. They they give us a black eye, so to speak. That doesn't mean that we should embrace or associate with them. We absolutely shouldn't, so that nobody unnecessarily gets the impression that there's no distinction between us and them. We should simply be of the mindset that we're eager to bless those who persecute, rather than cursing them. And that means at least praying for them to come to repentance, at least praying for them to really experience God's grace. One of the ways that we can be sure that these aren't authentic followers of Jesus is in their fruit. It's found here in the second verse here where Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. One of the most profound statements in all of scripture is found in John chapter 11 verse 35, where John simply writes, Jesus wept. Jesus wept? The same creator of the universe who took on flesh? The same God who, according to his omniscience, knows all things past, present, and future? He wept? Yeah, he wept. He knew that Lazarus was going to die. It wasn't a surprise for him. In verse 11, Jesus tells his disciples, before they even leave town to go to Lazarus, that Lazarus has died. Nobody told him yet. He just knew. He also knew that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. Because again, in verse 11, Jesus tells them that that's the reason he's going. It's to do just that, to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. But again, Jesus is setting the example for us to follow. And so John tells us that when Jesus finally arrives on the scene, he writes, quote, When Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's from John chapter 11, verse 32. Now, first of all, let's point out that Mary obviously knew exactly who Jesus was because she knew what he was capable of doing. But it also appears that she doesn't understand the compassion, the grace that Jesus was feeling. And so John continues, writing, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, And the Jews who came with her, also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. That's from verse 33. And then in verse 35, it says Jesus wept. So what did Jesus do? Well, he asked to be taken to where Lazarus was, but before he left to raise Lazarus from the dead, he wept. Not because he had to, but because he chose to. Why? Well, you know, we can honestly do a lot of speculating on that, but I'd say that one reason is because people are comforted by the compassion of others. He could have raised Lazarus from the dead right away instead of taking a moment to weep with those who are weeping. But can you imagine how comforted they must have felt to know that Jesus felt their pain? It's comforting for us to know when we're grieving that we're not alone. That's a horrible feeling. And so Jesus modeled for us what it means to grieve with those who are grieving, to weep with those who are weeping. Far be it from an authentic follower of Jesus to do the very opposite of what Paul is instructing here, that being to rejoice over those who are weeping. That's exactly what those people who gather to protest at the funerals of soldiers are doing. They are rejoicing over those who are weeping. They're rejoicing over the death of someone right in front of that soldier's family. How cold-hearted is that. And not only that, but it's not Christ like either. It's the opposite of compassion. And if we look at exactly what's going on there spiritually, I think that we can recognize that their repulsive celebration, their repulsive proclamation of God's judgment over the death of anyone, especially someone who's died so that those people would have the right to protest is demonic? Who else would have any interest at all in confusing the world by trying to convince people that doing something so mean, so calloused, is righteous behavior by any definition of the term? To weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice is to live as a community which is of one accord. It's to fulfill the law of Christ, in fact. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul writes, "...bear one another's burdens, and thereby..." Fulfill the law of Christ. Could there be a more selfless picture than this? That means that even if I don't necessarily feel like doing so in my flesh, I need to extend Christ's compassion to anyone who needs it. That includes all that we've talked about today. It includes blessing those who persecute rather than cursing them. It includes weeping with those who weep. And it includes rejoicing with those who rejoice. Selfless compassion even under the most extreme circumstances, selfless compassion. We have nothing to gain from it, but that's what it means to live selflessly. And that's one of the things that identifies us as authentic followers of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for this time where we can come to your word and just learn more about you. And Lord, I want to lift up these groups who are hatefully... Uh, going out in public in your name and showing people a a total lack of respect, a total lack of compassion. Lord, I pray, first of all, that you would comfort those families uh, whose children are being mocked by these protesters. And I pray that you would help them to understand that that's not what you're all about that you are a God who loves and who has compassion, that you are a God who weeps when we are weeping. And God, I just ask that you would also somehow reach out to these people who are protesting and celebrating your judgment uh, upon these people uh, and really making uh, fools of all of us. Lord, I pray that you will reach out to them, that you will show them what real grace is all about, what you are all about. Lord, I don't know what it would take To break through the hard heartedness of some of those people. But I know that you do know what it would take to break through. And so, Lord, we just lift them up to you and ask that you would reach them. Father, again, we thank you so much for this time. We pray that you will bless and preserve this message for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org.